Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to season two of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Last episode, we talked about social revolution. You know, a different thing altogether from the sort of violent political upheaval that brings about regime change or throws off the yoke of Western imperialism. Women's suffrage and the slower incremental struggle for equal rights is no less revolutionary, but it's what some might call or what is needed a permanent revolution. In this episode, we stick with social revolution, but the focus is on labor. And there's a lot of violence associated with workers' rights, at least at the beginning of the century. And like women's rights, it is a work in progress. If anything, we've probably taken steps backward since our featured films were made. Our three films were produced within a decade of each other, 1979 to 1987, when labor faced immense struggles in the face of the Reagan revolution. Not only did Reagan fracture the normally reliable democratic coalition of voters, peeling off many blue collar workers, his administration also slashed and burned decades of meaningful worker protections in basically every industry. We're starting with John Sayles' Mate One from 1987, which is a film that actually takes us way back to the infamous 1920 coal miner strike in West Virginia. Next is Norma Ray from 1979, Martin Ritt's film starring Sally Field and based on a true story of a North Carolina textile worker who pushes for unionization. And then we have Silkwood from 1983, about Karen Silkwood, the nuclear power whistleblower and union activist who died under mysterious circumstances. So what are our lives agreed upon in this episode? Well, the first is that history is a story of progress. A lot of it just, well, isn't. And workers' rights in America is a case in point. Unions are weaker today than they were when these films were even made. 
And they were made in response to an active campaign to reduce workers' rights and vilify unions during the 1980s. Our second lie is tied directly to the first, but it gets a bit more specific. It's that dangerous conditions for workers are a thing of the past, relegated to Dickens novels and the sweatshops of the turn of the last century. Students are often assigned Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which is about meat processing plants in Chicago circa 1900, or they're taught about the Triangle Factory fire when almost 150 women were killed in a sweatshop fire in New York in 1911, and they're taught these largely so that we can congratulate ourselves that we no longer subject workers to these kinds of conditions. Yeah, that's that's right. And the historical truth is that efforts to protect workers from exploitation have never been adequate, and that employers are always favored over labor by the lawmakers who should be protecting them. Now, at the time of this recording, the Biden stimulus plan is about to be voted on, and the big headline is business wins, and no one should be surprised about that. So yes, these statements sound political, but if we simply look at the historical record, we see quite clearly that they are statements of fact. The politics can come into the philosophical discussions of whether and what we should do about it, but the history is very clear. As always, we're going to recap our uh, plots for you, and we're going to start with Mate One, which is probably a film that uh, many of our listeners haven't heard of, but it's really, truly uh, worth going back and watching. It's a brilliant writing and directorial effort by independent filmmaker John Sayles. It stars Chris Cooper, who often served as John Sayles' muse, uh, as Joe Kenahan, a union organizer who comes to town amid increased tensions between coal miners and the all-powerful Stone Mountain Coal Company. James Earl Jones, and, and boy, it's great to see him in the flesh acting, is Few Clothes Johnson. All of us Mary McDonald fans will be happy to see her here as Elma Radner, who runs a boarding house and is mother to Danny, an aspiring preacher and young coal miner who is also providing the voiceover from a perspective decades removed from the 1920 event. Danny is played by a singer-songwriter, Will Oldham, uh, also known as Bonnie Prince Charlie in some circles. And another one of our favorites, really this movie is full of all sorts of favorites in some of their earliest performances. David Strathern is the pro-union police chief, Sid Hatfield. Yes, as in the Hatfields and the McCoys, who is caught in the middle of the impending violence. The film begins with Joe, a United Mine Workers representative, uh, arriving to town to organize angry miners facing wage cuts. Now, the company imports Black and Italian workers to break a strike, setting up a major conflict within the town over who deserves to be unionized and who doesn't. Um, we see just how powerful Stone Mountain is controlling every aspect of Mate One, even if Chief Hatfield is itching for a fight with their hired goons. Uh, Stone Mountain plants a mole in the union, played by perpetual villain actor Bob Gunton. You'll recognize him immediately as the warden in Shawshank Redemption, and we just saw him as Woodrow Wilson in Iron Jawed Angels. So when you see that actor, you know he's up to no good. But, but he manages to turn people against Joe and urges the miners to get violent. 
but this would then justify using force and crushing any effort at unionization. All this drama and intrigue comes to a head when a private army of union busters arrives and the inevitable confrontation turns into an all-out gun battle in the center of town. The Matewan massacre, of which Joe is an unfortunate victim, is the precursor to the most violent episode of the Great Coalfield War that started in 1912. A year after Matewan, the Battle of Blair Mountain pitted 10,000 miners against 3,000 armed lawmen and mercenaries, resulting in 100 dead. It was the largest armed uprising in the U.S. since the Civil War. But let me ask, have you ever heard of it? I can say no. And I think it's one of the reasons why this film is so great and important for you know, this generation to, to go back and look at. Now, every film this week dramatizes both the conflicts between labor and management, as well as internal divides over race, gender, and even age. A lot of these union efforts happened during the Jim Crow era in the South, and workers often had to overcome their learned prejudices uh, to see the bigger picture. When James Earl Jones walks into a union meeting hoping to join his workers with the miners, Joe has to do something, and he has to be convincing. So let's listen to him start to bridge this divide in this clip from Mate One. You won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair. But you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. They use you until you wear out or you break down or you're buried under a slate fall and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much coal you can load or how long your family has lived on this land. If you stand alone, you're just so much shit to those people. You think this man is your enemy? This is a worker. Any union keeps this man out ain't a union. It's a goddamn club. Now they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world, them that work and them that don't. You work, they don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. Norma Ray is a 1979 film directed by Martin Ritt and written by the married writing team of Harriet Frank Jr. and Irving Ravitch from a 1975 book, Crystal Lee, A Woman of Inheritance, by New York Times reporter Henry Lieferman. It won Field and Oscar and a Cannes Award for Best Actress and was nominated for Best Picture. Despite the movie poster image of Field making the film look like it was a rom-com, Norma Ray is probably best remembered for the iconic image of Sally Field standing on a workbench on the factory floor, holding up a sign reading Union. It also stars uh, Ron Liebman as a union organizer and Bo Bridges as Norma Ray's husband. The always great character actors Pat Hingle and Gail Strickland round out the cast. Boiled down, Norma Ray is the story of a young woman with not much education taking on the ownership of a textile factory in rural North Carolina. Working conditions are poor and the health of her friends and family suffer because of it. 
even to the point of killing her father. Her growing anger at the situation coincides with the arrival of Ruben, Ron Liebman's character, a New Yorker from the National Union tasked with organizing a chapter way down south. Unlike the overt brutality and danger in Matewan, and Norma, Norma Ray, we see how sophisticated and passive aggressive anti-union action has become. You know, you can't, there's no violence, there's no sort of the company controlling every aspect of life, almost in a legal sense, but the company does have the power to kind of break the spirit of, of workers. And it takes us through the very real nitty gritty details of unionization efforts, including all the pettiness, the intimidation, the exploitation of racism and, and misogyny by the owners, which is done to undermine pro-union efforts. And it's not just the owners. You know, officers come from the national office and try to sideline Norma Ray once they hear rumors that she's, in the parlance of the time, a whore. Uh, more on that later when we talk to our first guest on this podcast. Yeah, and Norma Ray is also not as explicitly grounded in the language of class warfare and socialism as sales mate one, as you might expect, but it's very effective in showing how high the stakes are, how much poor people are conditioned to accept their fate, and how hard it is to get a diverse group of people to join together in common interest. Here's a scene with Ron Liebman urging the textile workers, some black, some young, some old, to tell their stories about premature deaths, illnesses, and the indignities of working under bad circumstances. I remember some of you from the Chakayoti Church. I did all of the talking that day. Now, I would like for you to speak. Please. A man's work should be a man's work, and not a term in jail. The black have been pushed, pulled, and scorned. For what? If the union is what everybody believes in, I'm for it all the way. Excuse me for saying this with many folks in the room, but when I get my minister cramps, which come pretty hard, they don't let me sit down on my job. They say you got to keep to your feet unless you bring a note from the doctor. We wouldn't say we were sick if we wasn't. You know, I look at a brick wall all day. I used to be a wonder there. They come and break it up to give us the feeling that we shut in. My husband, Abel, died of brown mom two months ago. His children are going to grow up not even knowing him. When watching this scene, you can almost see the revelation on people's faces as they recount their own miseries and realize that they're not alone uh, and how they're all just being so poorly treated. We want you to keep this scene in mind when we talk to our first guest. Yes, it's really interesting how uh, our uh, our scholar that we're interviewing talks about why this scene, why the people look the way they do in this scene. Now, Silkwood is our third movie, and it should be a more remembered film than it is. Uh, released in 1983, it stars Meryl Streep, Cher, and Kurt Russell. Based on the 1981 book, Who Killed Karen Silkwood by Howard Cohn, the screenplay was written by Nora Ephron and Alice Arlen, and the film was directed by Mike Nichols. So the pedigree is incredible. Both Streep and Cher were nominated for Oscars, and Cher won, deservedly, the Golden Globe. Quite frankly, 
her performance in this reminds me of just how fantastic she was as an actress and what a shame it is that she chose to get huge amounts of face freezing plastic surgery and focus on her concert show instead of continuing to give us incredible performances like she did here and of course everybody remembers moonstruck but also another real favorite of mine is mask which she's really great in anyway i just wanted to mention that yeah i i agree and i this was the kind of peak moments of her acting life and uh, it, you, you do miss it. Uh, Silkwood is different from our other two films because it takes on what was seen then as a relatively new industry. Coal mines, textile, textile mills, these are where the modern proletariat came into existence. Uh, and yet the plight of workers in unsafe conditions pales in comparison to the accidental death of millions should things go wrong at a nuclear power plant. Now, Silkwood is as much about whistleblowing and the perils of deregulation as it is about the eternal struggle between labor and capital. The Kerr-McGee fuel fabrication site, which operated in rural Oklahoma between 1965 and 1975, seems to be filled with sick people. Workers are regularly cooked by radiation and scrubbed raw in showers, as if that helps. The implications go beyond their safety, but the newness of the industry means the classic measures of unsafe conditions don't even really apply here. Like Norma Ray, unions get involved, but in this case, they don't necessarily have the workers' interests at heart because they see the impending disaster at Kermagee as a potential publicity opportunity to give them leverage in a contract negotiation. In other words, there's already a union in place but it isn't protecting these workers. Given Karen's access to documents and x-rays that prove the plant is working too fast and sloppy, shipping faulty fuel rods and trying to cover it up, the union uses her to gather documentation and expose the company uh, to the press and the film ends with Karen driving to meet a reporter. But what we get in the film is that she sees headlights bearing down on her. And that's the end of the movie because we don't know. Officially, Karen Silkwood was killed in a one car accident. But the film and the book it is based on implies that she was silenced for being a whistleblower. And there's a scene, you know, after visiting, you know, Washington with, with other union reps to testify before the Atomic Energy Commission, some union-sponsored doctors show up in Texas and scare the hell out of the workers, finally telling them the truth about their prolonged exposure to plutonium. Now, after that bomb drops, uh, the Craig T. Nelson character confronts Ron Silver, uh, who plays a union rep, and lays bare a common theme in our films. Is it better to have fair and safe jobs or no jobs at all? Let's play that exchange between Craig T. Nelson and Ron Silver. In the coal mines years ago, they used to put canaries in the tunnels. And if the canaries dropped dead, they knew there was a gas leak. It's a brand new industry. So you're the canaries. Plutonium causes cancer. Anybody tells you we don't know how much plutonium causes cancer, they're lying. What we don't know is how little plutonium causes cancer. The government says 
that the maximum permissible body burden for your lifetime is 40 nanocubes. Now, let me tell you how much that is. That is the size of a tiny dot on a piece of paper. We say that that's too much. We say that it takes less than that to kill you. Did management give you any literature about cancer? Then you get contaminated, and they tell you you've had an acceptable level of contamination. I say there's no such thing. There must be some questions. Is there any way to get the plutonium out of you if it's inside your lungs? Well, you can take the lung out, but that's a little extreme. So how come we didn't hear any of this before? And how come we didn't see any of you guys until they decided to make this vote with for the union? You're so worried about us. We're not worried in the union. Look, what we're saying is you need someone on your side looking out for your health and safety. Now, the company says they're taking care of you. Do you believe that? Yeah, you do. I believe that. You do. Yeah, and you're the only guy in that room that still does. But let me tell you something else, sir. So it doesn't matter if you work on plutonium or dog food because they ain't going to give you a thing. There's nowhere left to go. If you start causing problems, the crew is going to shut that plant down, and then what? You're going to be up in Washington, D.C. We're going to be down here out of work. Your cancer's a maybe. That's all it is, it's a maybe. And really, honestly, he has a point when he asks Ron Silver, where were you years ago? Why now? Unions, at least the management or national offices, are not always cast as heroes in these films, as we see not just here, but also in Norma Ray. While Mate Mon was a small, independent film that didn't get much screen time upon its release, what Norma Ray and Silk would remind us of is that Hollywood used to make character and plot-driven movies about and for grown-ups, and they are both critical and commercial successes. We miss those days. I think the star power and resources behind films like Norma Ray and Silkwood have to do with the country's turn to the right, culminating with the Reagan revolution, which ushered in an era of giddy, reckless deregulation and attacks on unions. Breaking the unions and deregulating almost every industry are enduring legacies of the Reagan era. I really think that's an understatement. And look, we all know Hollywood's reputation for liberal elitism, but really what's more corporate than the film industry this last 30 years? And so this was before the rise of independent films. So it actually is when Hollywood was a, a, a behemoth institution. Um, Mate One, we get in the later years of this decade that we're looking at. It's the late film, 87. And by that point, um, uh, you know, studios were only just losing their stranglehold on production. So why did they do it then? Why did they make Norma Ray and Silkwood? Being openly liberal and progressive in the 1980s really contradicted the zeitgeist and uh, challenged the status quo. So it's very interesting to think that for every Rambo and Schwarzenegger flick, which really were the, the kind of prototypical movies, Hollywood movies of the Reagan era, you still had a Silkwood and a Norma Ray. So in other words, there was a market for dissenters in times of great political realignment like this one. 
And that holds true as we go on. If you think about how popular something like West Wing was in the Bush years, you know, some of us really wanted to live in a world with a liberal academic president who easily won two terms in office. You know, science fiction. Labor is all but broken today. Uh, But how did it get that way? And why were the 70s and 80s a turning point? Let's dig a little deeper into that story. The formation of the AFL-CIO in 1955 might be considered a high point for the modern labor movement, stringing together a series of wins from collective bargaining. For example, manufacturing workers tripled weekly earnings between 1945 and 1970. But even then, just a third of wage earners were were unionized. As we see dramatized in all three of our films, however, women and minorities were not always welcome in these unions that were so successful and and expanding in those post-war decades. Or at the very least, their problems were not prioritized over strictly economic gains. The AFL-CIO did push for civil rights and backed Lyndon Johnson's push for the Civil Rights Act, seeing it as a chance to promote labor. But something changes between the 1960s and the 1970s. What is it? We should say, you know, neither of us are labor historians, so let's cite our sources here. If we were taking a history of labor in America class, you would probably be reading the textbook Labor in America, a History by Foster R. Dulles and Melvin Dubofsky. So we're getting our information from that. But you could say, you know, from the early 1970s onward, new competitive forces swept through the heavily unionized industries, set off by deregulation and communications and transportation. This was an era of industrial restructuring and the beginning of cheap goods from foreign markets flooding the country, especially China. Uh, This just decimated the unions, prompted tons of closings, and led to more concession bargaining. That's when a you know unions are agree and really are pressured to give back pay and other benefits in exchange for some job security. In other words, you know, we'll take a pay cut if we're allowed to remain open or keep our job for another five years or something like that. With the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, there came to power an anti-union administration, the likes of which had not been seen since the Warren Harding era. Although the reduction of union membership began in the Jimmy Carter administration in response to those pressures that Brian was just talking about, it ramped up during Ronald Reagan's first administration and union membership between 1975 and 1985 fell by 5 million. In manufacturing, the unionized portion of the labor force dropped below 25%. While mining and construction, once labor's flagship industries, were decimated. Only in the public sector did the unions hold their own. By the end of the 1980s, less than 17% of American workers were organized, half the proportion of the early 1950s. It is also about deregulation which just underwent another wave during the Trump years. Let's listen to former Labor Labor Secretary Robert Reich explain what we're up against. 
And yes, we know Robert Reich is a you know big lefty and all this, and he's overtly anti-Trump. And that's when this clip de- derives from that period. But the information is accurate. They say getting rid of regulations frees up businesses to be more profitable. Maybe, but regulations also protect you and me from being harmed, fleeced, shafted, injured, or sickened by corporate products and services. So when the Trump administration gets rid of regulations, top executives and big investors may make more money, but the rest of us bear more risks and harm. After heavy lobbying by the chemical industry, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency has scaled back the way the government decides whether some of the most dangerous chemicals on the market pose health and safety risks, which may increase the profits of the chemical industry, but will leave the rest of us less protected from toxins that can make their way into dry cleaning solvents, paint strippers, shampoos, cosmetics. We may not know for years the extent we are unprotected until the next financial collapse. We haven't seen anything like this probably since the Great Depression. The next public health crisis. The public health crisis of massive proportions led in the water supply. The next upsurge in fraud, next floods or droughts because the EPA failed to do what it could to slow and reverse climate change. Don't fall for it. Trump's binge of deregulation is just another form of trickle-down economics, where the gains go to the top and nothing trickles down except risks and losses. Yes, I think it's important to point out and sort of move away from the idea that this is a Democrat critique versus Republicans, because Reich's old boss, Bill Clinton, was no friend of unions either. Uh, the world changed, and it probably won't ever go back to those post-World War II days of unions achieving incremental progress for all. And Democratic administrations are implicated in that as well. Yeah. And, you know, remember Robert Reich kind of had a falling out with Clinton because of exactly that. There's another component to Norma Ray and Silkwood that's not just about unions, and that's the ancillary concern sometimes of worker safety. Neither Norma Ray or Silkwood mention the words occupational safety and health administration because, you know, it's not that exciting, but it is definitely part of their stories. Passed in 1970 during the Nixon administration, and yes, for all his faults, uh, the guy also created the EPA, OSHA provided much needed protections for workers by creating, finally, federal guidelines. Yeah. And the issue here is the chemical revolution and the danger that industrial chemicals pose to clean air and water, let alone the workers exposed to them every day. Whether it's textile mills in North Carolina or the poorly regulated nuclear power industry in places like Oklahoma, OSHA was intended to provide at least a modicum of protection for all of us. And so it's important to understand that a film from 1979, Norma Ray, and 1983, Silkwood, are dramatizing why this relatively newly formed agency was needed. And, and so it's not surprising that that's a central component of these plots, although neither movie really says so explicitly. Yeah, and I think we have to to talk about Silkwood in another scenario here, which is about nuclear war and nuclear power. Now, the Reagan era was also the period of increased Cold War tensions. 
Nixon signed the SALT-1 Nuclear Weapons Limitation Treaty in 1972. But by the 1980s, not only Reagan, but also his buddy Margaret Thatcher, were fearful that the SALT-2 Nuclear Weapons Limitations Treaty that Jimmy Carter had signed with Brezhnev in 1979 was in fact a sellout. The duo believed that Brezhnev was ramping up weapons production because the Soviet Union felt increasingly isolated in a world where Eastern Europe was being forcefully kept in line and China was becoming friendlier with the U.S. Yes, Brian and I can certainly tell our listeners that when we were growing up, we firmly believed that we wouldn't survive to adulthood. A nuclear war was going to end it all. U.S.-Soviet belligerence in the 1980s was at an all-time high, and Hollywood responded with a series of movies that looked at nuclear warfare directly and nuclear power as an indirect critique, not just Silkwood, but also the China Syndrome came out in this era, and both of those were in the shadow, in a sense quite literally, of the Three Mile Island nuclear power disaster. But the movies that really caught everybody's attention, not just in the US, but in Britain, were movies that depicted the aftermath of nuclear warfare. Movies like Testament, about a family in California in the aftermath of nuclear war, and TV movies like The Day After, which was a huge media, you know, popular culture event uh, in the U.S., and Threads, uh, a, a TV movie in Britain, covered the same story. And it's in this era that we also get activists like Dr. Helen Caldicott, who have their voices amplified through documentaries like If You Love This Planet. And so let's listen to a bit of that here to get a sense of the of the um the mood uh, in this in this moment, this in this zeitgeist, this anti-nuclear uh, zeitgeist of the the nineteen eighties, she's addressing what you're you're listening to is her addressing a room full of very scared-looking young adults as she talks about the Cold War nuclear arsenal. You are all children of the atomic age. You have grown up with this. You probably have nightmares sometimes about nuclear war. Some of you, uh, when you were young, practiced drill in your schools, hiding under your desks in case a bomb dropped, putting bits of paper on your head to hide from the nuclear explosions, right? You remember those days? So today, America has 30 to 35,000 nuclear weapons. That's enough, they say, the Pentagon says, to overkill, which is a Pentagon word and not a medical term, overkill every Russian human being 40 times. Uh, Russia has 20,000 bombs. That's enough to overkill every American human being 20 times. So who's ahead or who's behind? If you think about this in medical terminology, how many times can you kill a human being? And they say, oh, Russia's ahead. You see, the mentality is about at a level of a nine-year-old boy. Yes, I remember this, and I definitely remember uh, Carl Sagan coming on right after the day after to talk about how accurate it was. And I'm still traumatized to this day by threads. So thanks for bringing that up again. (laughs) 
So let's remind uh, our listeners of the lies agreed upon and uh, how our films address them. First, one of the most common myths Americans believe is that history is a story of progress, that it may be incremental, but that things improve and that we become more enlightened and all of that. Uh, The reality is that workers' rights and unions are actually weaker today than they were when these movies were made. Perhaps to some people, that is progress, but certainly to the vast majority of the population who constitutes the middle and working classes, it really can't be seen that way. Absolutely. And our second lie, and Robert Wright kind of got to this, is that unsafe and unhealthy worker conditions are things of the past. Tell that to an Amazon warehouse worker who has to pee in a bottle, or basically any worker in the meatpacking industry who, it has to be said, are completely unprotected by the law because of immigration status. This was most recently dramatized by the the supply chain problems begun by COVID, uh, where the a real you know light was shown on how awful the conditions were even before the pandemic. Um, workers can be coerced to work 24-7 just to make up for the, the break in the supply chain. And we see that coinciding with was a, a, a new era of deregulation under the Trump administration. Yes, we go all the way back to Matewan, and we, we know that this is a, a tragedy, a real-life massacre. And John Sayles' 1987 film is meant to remind us of just how difficult it was to achieve the most basic protections for workers. And, um, you know, and the fact that the Stone Mountain Company really controlled every aspect of people's lives. They they paid you in vouchers that you could only spend in their stores. They mandated that you lived in their houses and compelled you to rent those houses and to rent the equipment in order to do the job and threatened you with a private army and police force any time you got out of line And none of this is fictional. And this is what the status quo was in the earliest, early 20th century. And, and here we just want to, to reinforce this by, by playing James Earl Jones, uh, getting the rundown from a Stone Mountain boss as they arrive, uh, in Matewan and to, to think about this in the context of how, uh, there are, you know, workers who are particularly vulnerable today who just accept whatever the conditions are at the giant plants and the towns that are attached to them uh, that um, they experience today. These picks and shovels are to be considered a loan from the Stone Mountain Coal Company. Their costs will be deducted from your first month's pay. Tool sharpener provided by the company is 25 cents a month. Use of the wash house is 75 cents a month. Medical doctor provided by the company is $2 a month. Special procedure is extra. Your train ride here provided by the company will be deducted from your first month's pay. Your pay will be issued as company script. Redeemable for all goods and services at the Stone Mountain Company Store. Purchases of any items available at the company store from outside merchants will result in firing without pay. Let's keep you off from jugging up them prices at your store. 
Name? Johnson. He calls me few clothes. Powder, fuses, lamps, headgear, all appropriate clothing will be available at the company store. And Stone Mountain will generously advance you a month's supply of these items. Payment to be deducted. I'm going to take you over to camp now where you'll be living. There's some Italian gentlemen that are very eager to meet you. Rentals will be for one room, $250 a month. Company rule. No more than two people in one room, children included. Yeah, that is a, a powerful clip, and it also you see in even Norma Ray and Silkwood indirectly, the companies pull all the strings in in communities as well. Uh, it's not just something that occurred in the 1920s. As for the second lie, of course, coal miners died early from black lung and perished in easily preventable accidents. Uh, Matewan shows this as well. Matewan is about shining a light on this 1920 tragedy in 1987 to highlight the dangers of this industry being deregulated once again. Yeah, the black lung in Matewan is replaced by the brown lung in Norma Ray, which of course is what her her father, who has heart trouble, but I'm sure that that's also tied to, you know, brown lung um, from, from inhaling all of the textile fibers. Now, rather than discuss Norma Ray, Ray between ourselves, uh, we thought that we would bring in an expert on the subject instead. And so what follows is a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Joey Fink, who's an assistant professor of history at High Point University, whose scholarship just happens to be on the real life J.P. Stevens unionization effort in Roanoke Rapids that Norma Ray depicts. Hi, Joey. Hi, Dr. Parody. So, Joey, Norma Ray is a, a thinly fictionalized account of the efforts of the real-life Crystal Lee Sutton, right, to help unionize the J.P. Stevens uh, textile mill in Roanoke Rapids. Uh, how accurate is the depiction in general in the movie of those efforts? So that itself is a question that has caused great controversy. Um, on one hand, the movie script, the movie Norma Ray, is very faithful to the book upon which it's based, which was a biography of Crystal Lee Sutton written by a journalist in 1975. The movie holds faithful to Crystal Lee's story as she told it to this journalist for her biography. How faithful the movie is to the union organizing drive in the larger story is up for debate. In fact, when the movie came out, there was a ton of journalistic coverage of the way it was received in the South. And it was really exciting to research this and find these moments when, when journalists are finding ordinary working class women in Southern mills and asking them, what did you think about this movie? You've got some who are saying, I loved it. There's a woman named Pat Burgess who says, uh, I even got so excited. I had to holler two or three times while I was watching it. Um, there's another woman who says, this was awful. It depicts us as these filthy, illiterate, dirty workers who don't wash under our armpits or scrub under our fingernails. Um, there were some who were saying, we don't like this depiction because it sensationalizes um, these lewd stories of a loose woman and others who say, no, you know, the town was a little patent place and this is exactly what things were like if a woman stepped out of bounds. 
And what I think is really interesting is Martin Ritt has explained that he takes this story and he knows it's going to sell to audiences because it's the story of this woman who breaks free from all of these shackles that are placed on her because she's poor, because she's a woman. He knows this is going to sell, but he needs to have some drama in the story. And he, there's no violence. There's no strike where people get their, get their heads cracked open. There's no Molly Maguire plot line. So he says the sexual tension between Norma Ray's character and the union organizing character, that's going to be where the drama is. And he has these scenes that he really choreographs to emphasize the sexual tension between them. That is the part of the movie that caused the most controversy. Um, Crystal Lee Sutton hated it because she couldn't control the way her story was being told. And she felt like it was replicating the, the drama and the rumors that she had pushed back against. The union was very leery of it. Union women were. So the movie, which becomes this really beloved Academy Award winning story of a woman's liberation. To some, it's, it's the most heroic story that comes out of the 70s. For others, it's something they tried to use to their advantage once it was clear that the movie was being made and this was the way the story was being told. Yeah, it's interesting because we've, you know, we've noted and and discussed the, you know, the deployment of romantic subplots uh, that are intended to somehow make a story more appealing or to quote unquote humanize some female firebrand mm-hmm. somehow. And that, you know, through our contemporary eyes, it's it's such a it's such an undermining effort instead mm-hmm. of being a, a you know a, a positive addition. So in the film, we see Norma Ray sitting her kids down and telling them about her sexual history, basically to get out ahead of potential rumors about her past. Can you tell us how that figured into the real events and, mm-hmm. and also maybe talk for a minute about what, what purpose in these kinds of communities or in these kinds of social settings, rumors can, can serve for people? Uh, that scene in the film, it, I would say, is the most authentic uh, really? it, it's it's almost word for word from Lieferman's biography of her, from Crystal Lee Sutton's own retelling of her own story as the real Norma Ray. And I did have an opportunity to do an oral history interview with her son. Um, Crystal Lee passed away just as I was beginning my research. And I didn't push hard on his retelling of the story. I asked open-ended questions like, do you remember a time in your childhood when you felt like this is it? I'm grown up. I'm leaving childhood behind. And without missing a beat, he says it, in Roanoke Rapids, when all that union organizing was going on, this moment of Lee sitting her children down and telling them, as far as I understand it, is 100% real. She did have what we might call a checkered past. Um, after she was widowed at the age of 20, she had an affair Um one of her child, one of her children was a product of that affair. So she had this, her second son out of wedlock. Um, after she remarried, she had an affair with a married man. And that was fairly well-known gossip in Roanoke Rapids because she tried to end the affair and went, when she tried to end the affair, the man she was having the affair with got violent with her. So she did something incredibly unusual and exceptional. She went to the chief of police of Roanoke Rapids to demand help 
the chief of police, Drury Beale, was her first cousin's husband. So he knew through the family gossip that she had her second son out of wedlock. She goes to him, not because she expects him to stick up for her as kin, but because, as she puts it, he must have thought I was a two-bit whore, but even a two-bit whore deserves help. So she seems to have always had this really strong insistence that no matter who you were or what mistakes you made, you deserve to be treated justly and fairly in the eyes of the employer, the law, society. So it's kind of unsurprising that when she gets involved in this union organizing campaign, she, she knows that there's a possibility these rumors about her. I shouldn't even call them rumors because it's, it's not necessarily untrue, but we'll say gossip gossip about what people knew or thought they knew about her would come out. After she's arrested for trying to copy down this anti-union letter, she has her stand in the shop floor holding the union sign up. She does sit her children down and tell them. And in later years, she talked about this as the moment when she really felt free. Nobody will ever have anything to hold over me again. So that scene, I think, is probably the best scene in the movie, not just because it's it's faithful to the real story, but because of how it's delivered. It seems it seems so authentic. Um, but the toll this had on Crystal Lee in her in her marriage, it's it's clear, you know, the, the marriage dissolved within a couple of years. Um, it could not hold up under the weight of all of the social pressures, um, the economic pressures and uh, the way that, as you put out, as you pointed out, the gossip was deployed in this town by both pro-union and anti-union people. That takes me to my my last question, really, which is that you point out in uh, in your research that, um, you know, women who are attempting to engage in, you know, quote unquote, public life, in this case, union organizing, they really do have to navigate these very unique social pressures and that the regulating nature of gossip really comes from both allies as well as mm-hmm. enemies of the cause. How did that work? What, how does it work to even sort of turn your, your um, supposed sort of compatriots against you or to against themselves that they become sort of self-regulating? Well, I'll I'll give you an example of sort of the obvious one, which is how anti-union people could use gossip and rumor. Um, An organizer named Charlotte Brody went to Roanoke Rapids in the 70s to work on this campaign, and she traveled to another southern town, staying at a hotel. She was going to be doing some organizing there. And she said late at night, all of a sudden there's this man banging on her hotel door, insisting to be let in. And it becomes clear to her that somebody had spread a rumor that she was a traveling prostitute who was staying in the hotel room. So Charlotte said she called the front desk and the way she put it, they were no help. It was like, I wasn't speaking their language. So I said, what did you do? She said, well, I I put a chair against the door and I didn't sleep much that night. And she said, but see, that's the thing. They didn't send somebody to beat me up. They spread rumors that I was a prostitute. So that's a kind of an obvious way that that can be deployed against women in particular in in a sort of psychological and emotional violence. Now, the way it worked among pro-union people, it gets really sticky. And, And as a historian, I have to be careful not to fall into the same trap that was going on at the time of just trying to parse out fact from fiction because you never can. Right. There's a uh, crystal uh, Charlotte Brody said, you know, when I got to Roanoke Rapids, I must've heard 20 different stories of what happened between 
you know, Crystal Lee and the union organizer. But what I have found is this, and this is clear from the archival record, not from oral histories. There were a group of pro-union workers who did not like and trust Crystal Lee. Some of that may have gone way back the way things are in small towns. And some of it may have been that Crystal Lee was remembered as passionate and larger than life. You know, her friends loved her for it and, and, and were drawn to her. Her enemies thought she was antagonistic and domineering and pushed people away. So there's the personality conflicts that can be part of any kind of passionate political action. Then there is the fact that it is clear that there was a strong bond between Crystal Lee and the union organizer, and it alienated some people. One woman said, you know, you don't understand when Crystal is in the room, he didn't see anybody else. Um, there was a man um, who wrote to the union several times saying, you know, what they're doing is wrong. She's there all hours of the night with him. Now, if it had been a man at the union office all hours of the night with the union organizer, no problem. He's committed. He's passionate. But it's Crystal Lee and she's shiny and larger than life or domineering and loose. You know? right, right. So these, these rumors get to the point where it really does start to threaten the success of the organizing drive. And even pro-union workers who are never going to engage in this kind of gossip to drive Crystal Lee out, even they're saying, it's getting to be too much. It's going to destroy our chances of success. And that's what causes Crystal to leave the campaign. And eventually you know, she moves away from Roanoke Rapids. Well, and, and you see evidence of that popping up in the movie, really all sorts of things that you're talking about. Like, for example, to go back to the previous uh, topic, uh, her being hit in the hotel room by her married lover when she says she's ending it. And then uh, the National Union uh, representatives coming to have a talk with them because mm -hmm. and and finding her in fact asleep in the mm -hmm. in the room you know this is a nod to all of these concerns yeah. about what it looks like and how that makes them vulnerable because she's there and you know I I, I really we, we we too generally we, we too often think of gossip and rumors something women do the men engage in this too oh and absolutely the union men like the 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 regional and national leaders who come there you know they're like there's there's a quote from somebody you know where, where they come and they say Oh, is she the one who got up on the table and hoochie coochied? Crystal Lee's son in the oral history interview says, you know, I can remember being at these union organizing meetings with my mom and I would just listen to what the adults were saying. And there would be the men talking about, oh, did you see what this one was wearing? So it's, it's, it's a really, to me, it's a great opportunity to do something really interesting with rumor and gossip that gets us out of thinking of it as this petty ancillary thing that doesn't matter. Right. And also is something that only women do it. And therefore we can dismiss it as some. Yeah, you know, that's chatter, so untrue. I know it really is so untrue. Absolutely. Yeah. So now moving away from talking about uh, Crystal Lee, the other thing that the movie makes reference to and that you see depicted is the number of black workers yeah. who become involved in the effort to unionize. And it's really quite noticeable, the, the racial makeup on the, the mill floor, mm -hmm. and then the racial makeup of those who become actively engaged mm -hmm. in the unionizing effort. But from what I understand, the movie really substantially downplays just how central black organization was in this particular uh, union fight. Is, yeah. is that correct? 
Yeah, it's strange because Martin Ritt, the director, he has had some great films where he centered issues of racial injustice. And so it can seem like, wow, Marty, you really missed an opportunity here. What happened? But when you look at his interviews, his notes, his discussions with the scriptwriters, over and over and over again, they're telling, uh, the producer said, we're going to tell a female Rocky story. You know, so it it really blinded them. They never felt it was their job to tell the true story of the union organizing. But it also blinded them to opportunities to dig further into issues of race that they just hint at in the movie. Like, for instance, um, it's true that Crystal Lee did host union organizing meetings at her house. Um, in the movie, there's a scene that I don't know is true. I think it's the scriptwriter's play with words where her husband says to her, Norma, there's black men in our house. And Norma says, well, I never had no problem with black men. The only problem I ever had was with white men. You know, so there's these tantalizing little moments where you're like, oh, why didn't you do more with that there? But over and over again, you see that they felt their job was to tell a story of a woman's liberation. And so it was going to be Crystal Lee's story. Although I have to say that going back and looking at Norma Ray now, it is actually quite striking how normalized African-American and white interaction in the film is. And I think that that even all by itself is quite a subversive act that, that there is just this interaction and that black members of this union effort are so Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, front facing and that you've got these sort of small interactions like the, the, the black worker getting beaten up and the others Mm -hmm. coming and interceding Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of those things actually, in some ways, the fact that it's kind of not remarked upon as being that big of a deal, except in that one um, interchange where like she's having all these people come into her house, mm-hmm. it in a way is actually kind of subversive. It is. So, oh, I, this just made me think of something I so wanted to share with you. There's a backstory to the scene in the movie where they're at Norma Ray's house. They had a couple of professional actors play the worker sitting in her living room talking about why they want to bring a union in. But they also got some extras who worked in the Opelika, Alabama mill. In that scene, there's a professional actor who delivers a line. And then all of a sudden, a young black man who's sitting on the other side of the room speaks and the camera swivels over and the words just sort of tumble out of his mouth. And he says, the blacks have been pushed and pushed for too long. And if if union is what everyone believes in, I'm all for it all the way. That was one of the extras who was actually a worker in the mill. He was not supposed to say that line, but he got so caught up in this moment of, of, of reenacting a union meeting that it came out of his mouth. And the, you know, the, the cinematographer's like, oh, you know, move on to him right now, get him in frame. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, yeah, it is, it's great the way that sort of organically and naturally happened. And it does, from what I understand, replicate the fact that in Roanoke Rapids, there was this really productive and unusual alliance between black workers and predominantly white women. Um, They were the driving force behind this union organizing drive. And for them to be in an alliance and to be co-leaders on the ground together, truly remarkable. It may in some ways account for the reason there was such, there were so many um, (laughs) tensions among the pro-union workers Because when these white women are doing what generations of white women in the South have been told never to do, 
which is be in close contact with black men, interact with them, treat them as equals. They know that they're pushing against some of the strictest rules their society has imposed upon both black men and white women. So Crystal Lee already breaking a bunch of rules that were imposed upon women maybe created this heightened sense of anxiety. Like if we're going to push the line on this, we absolutely cannot afford to push the line on that. It may also account for the reason there were some white pro-union men who were so fiercely against Crystal Lee. Um, they were living in a moment in the seventies when everything their fathers and grandfathers had lived through and experienced, you know, it didn't apply to their world anymore. The, their, their position as a, as a poor, but white man that was crumbling around them. And in this 1970s world where you've got the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, one of the union organizers said to me something like, um, you know, it was a time when rules were, were being challenged and how did she put it? Sometimes when there are no rules, people get even harder on the rules. Thanks, Joey, so much for talking to us. Your uh, research and your insights are going to really uh, help our listeners when they're uh, hopefully watching Norma Ray. Yeah, thank you. This was a real pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a great conversation because not only do we get a, a real clarity on who the real Norma Ray was, but just how the politics of making the film and the reception of the film battered and still does. And it's, so it's exactly the sort of thing our, our podcast is about. So thank you, Dr. Joy Fink, because that's it's a, it's an excellent perspective on this film. So I guess it's time for us to talk a little bit about other things that we we liked uh, or didn't like about these movies. And one of the things that I thought it would be, I'd really like to get a sense from you about, uh, I, I felt like both Matewan and Norma Ray just did an incredible job of putting you in this space. Like you really felt with Mate One, like you were in these hollers of West Virginia in, uh, in um, you know, the 1920s. And in that, that period, how isolated this place was, how isolated these people were. Um, and therefore how vulnerable they were to the company. Um, and then Norma Ray, again, I felt, boy, did you ever feel like you were in the, whatever town they picked to film this in, uh, you know, you really feel like you're in this, you know, relatively poor uh, town. Like the place that's the bar in Norma Ray is like, it's really just this kind of linoleum tabletop fluorescent light. Like there's, you know, I mean, it, it, the atmosphere is in many ways all about the fact that there is no atmosphere, if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Silkwood yeah. is yeah. not as good. And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But the, I wanted to get your sort of uh, feel for Mate One and Norma Ray in this respect. Yeah, I love any film or series that makes me feel like I'm caught in this in a in their world and and can't tell where it's being filmed. You know, even if it's like California, you know, it really is. It, you totally are, believe you're there, and of course, you'd expect that from from John Sales. I think where you can totally understand how a company could govern 
without with impunity because it, there's nothing around. There's no sense of a connection to the rest of the world, and so you feel you're as a, you're as a, as vulnerable as these workers are, and you feel how claustrophobic. Not just when they're in the mines, but just living in the town. Who's there to help them? I mean, what's that? The, it's um, it's a real talent of a director to make you feel as the as like the protagonists do and same thing with norma ray where you know i kind of i grew up in north carolina uh but not in that part of the state but i certainly visited many times and drove through it and i can totally identify with it as i think probably anyone in a you know the, the midwest could as well have a similar sense of place and and that's really key to the story as well that you you know these are people who are going to possibly look to have uh, more and be more afraid about losing their job than unionizing and how and what it must take to overcome that fear. And with Silkwood, yeah, I also I thought it, the whole time I thought the movie was in Texas. And then I had to read that it was in Oklahoma. You never get a sense of anything other than that it was really, uh, you know, well, in the middle of nowhere. And maybe that's so maybe that's OK. But. Well, yeah. And I also got a feeling in Silkwood with stuff like, you know, the Confederate flag hanging over the bed. I, I felt like, it, you know, it was, I mean, it is a problem that I actually have had with other Mike Nichols films as well is that I, I think that sometimes they're too pretty. They're too nicely put together. You know, Martin Ritt directed HUD, you know, he's not afraid of, of going in, you know, having things, um, look like they would look to the people who are living this experience. Whereas I, I feel like Mike Nichols often wants to make things look gorgeous, which on the one hand is like, okay, that's, that's great. It looks gorgeous, but I'm not sure that that serves the story. And so I felt that in Silkwood, that it was almost like it looked too pretty. And then the other thing was, I felt like there were this, was this kind of like, New York, California, liberal shorthand for, hey, mm -hmm, these yeah. are <laughs> undereducated people from the South. And that that's what you get with the, you know, the Confederate flag. I thought the one part that actually worked in giving you the sense of place is when they were in Chemical Alley in Texas, because that. Right. I felt like gave you this sense of like, oh, I see. Basically, she, this is what working class people, this is what their choices are. That you get to choose to flee Chemical Alley in Texas to move to, you know, nuclear fuel rod Oklahoma. Like, the, <laughs> here's here's your choice. Uh, as a worker and the sort of ugliness of where her ex-partner is living with all of these, you know, chemical plants and everything all around them. I felt like that was the one place where it sort of, uh, it sort of worked. Yeah. I think the key for all three films is the sense of isolation. And yeah, you do. And I, you know, I think we're kind of joking about this that you have, and some, a lot of the reviews joked about this too, is when you have the you know, the the Jewish labor organizers come down and they're always I mean they're just so stereotypically Jewish and in a way they're meant to be that way. And yes, the Norma Ray character, uh the the 
Ruben is based on a real person, and actually so is the Ron Silver person. But it's like they went you know, straight out of the the handbook of like, let's find the liberal Jewish labor organizer with an odd last name and put him in the film to rep to represent you know the outside world's uh, invading this this little you know southern town. And it's um, kind of it, it, it's I don't know if it's offensive or anything, but it's just odd. And especially when you consider that, you know, that the, the directors themselves were, I think, Jewish and, were, and didn't have a problem with it. But it seems to me something I noticed in both those two, those films anyway. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned the label, labor unionizers, because one of the things that I thought, like, as a, I, I agree with you about what you're, you're saying, that, but then another aspect of it that I feel like you know, of course, we don't get it in Silkwood because the union is already in place. But in Mate One and in uh, Norma Ray, one of the things that that you get by having such a great sense of the place and the culture uh, that these stories are taking place in is that the bravery of a union organizer to show up as this single person into this space really gets reinforced. Like, you know, in rewatching Mate One, which I'd seen multiple times before, but not for a while, I was really struck by the incredible bravery of Chris Cooper's character because you really do get the sense that he is unbelievably vulnerable. He's got a target on his back and, and he has to overtly be there as an enemy of the power that is in place. And, and the Ron Liebman character in, uh, in uh, uh, Norma Ray, you know, the way that he sort of deals with it is to be sort of, really sunny and cheery and positive in all of his interactions. And it it takes on almost a form of aggression. Like it's the only weapon he yeah. has because he's all by he's, himself. You can tell he's used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And that he, he, and yeah, but he, goes, yeah. he knocks on the door. Right. And it's like, Oh, are you a Jew and a communist? And he's like, well, you know, and it, that's Norma Ray's father, by the way, who, who accuses him of that. So they have to overcome, you know, the whole town's uh, suspicions, both, even if they are predisposed to maybe unionizing, it's still an outsider. And yeah, the sense, the, it, the, it's, it's bravery in different ways separated by a few decades. I, I think they're both brave characters, but obviously for, for Joe, he literally has a target on his back. They try to kill them, kill him more than once. And that's again, true to, true to life. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, our reviews of the movie, I mean, where we, I mean, I would say that we're obviously going to be, uh, uh, recommending, uh, all of these, uh, movies. Um, but I, I mean, I would, I guess I would say that uh, uh, what I would really want to impress upon people, because I imagine that the one of these three films that they have not heard of, let alone seen, is probably Mate One. And I mean, I'm a big John Sayles fan in general, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that this is, is quite possibly, you know, one of his, his best. What do you think? I will admit that I had not seen Mate One before. That's one of the great things about 
doing this podcast with you is that I, I see things that I either have avoided or somehow just, you know, don't seek out. And that was one example. And I was blown away by it. So yes, definitely uh, agree with you about how insignificant and beautiful and important Mate One is and also unknown. Uh, and rewatching Norma Ray and Silkwood in close succession to one another is is very interesting as well because you see how they're they're similar but their differences are are equally important not just about you know the the issues involved but uh, just the style of the film and i'm so grateful that uh, that Joey Fink gave us the perspective she did on Norma Ray cuz now i appreciate the film even more and understand it a bit more both the the good and the bad so uh, our next episode is the last episode of this season. And we, after having taken our listeners on a bit of a journey uh, away from the classic notion of revolution, which of course is where we started with the American Revolution, we've decided to end back in the realm of classic revolutions with the Russian Revolution. And so that is where we are going balalaika soundtrack and all uh, in our next uh, and final episode of the season. We hope you join us. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.